Well, good morning again. I hope that this morning you'll take a Bible out with me and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And that's where we will begin our launch sequence for today's uh, message. We have been looking and we are now in the third week in our study with regards to the end times, the last days, the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I think if you are like me, you're kind of swimming in information. Sometimes some of the details and, and those things can be a little bit overwhelming for us. Today probably won't be a whole lot different. Okay, uh, so I make no apology for it. Um, but today is going to be tough because today there's math. And that sounds exciting. And, but we're going to use not the new math. We're going to use the old math. All right. So we're just going to like add and subtract. All right. But we're going to uh, we're going to look today at what I think is one of the more controversial subjects, or one of the most disputed or debated parts about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It also, at the same time, is one of the most misunderstood or or uh, one of those things that we seem to be the most ignorant about, and ignorant by that I mean uninformed, is this idea of getting caught up or the rapture of the church. Is there such a thing as the rapture of the church? Now, before I start, let me, uh, so that I can be on. Uh, intellectually honest with you I've checked there is the word rapture is to be found nowhere in your Bible now that may depend on your version okay but I know in the King James the New King James more more of the older classic translations of of the Bible that the word rapture is not there and so I want to make sure that I'm being honest with you and that gives a lot of people reason, or at least in their way of thinking, reason for disputing or disregarding the idea of the rapture. But just because the word is not in your English Bible, it doesn't mean that the event is not in your Bible, nor that, that, the, uh, uh, that the word that we would use for rapture is in, for instance, the Latin version of the Bible. But we, but it's been translated into a different word than the one that we use. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. We're going to read the, that word uh, in a moment in 1 Thessalonians. So as we, as we launch into this study today, I understand that there is some, uh, some debate that goes on with regards to uh, the rapture of the church. And as far as I can tell, this is, I told you that I, when we started this study, that I would let you know when I'm t telling you what's my opinion and my conclusion and what is biblical statement, all right? I want to share with you from my study what I've concluded. There are four primary views with regards to the rapture. The first view 
is what is called pre-tribulation rapture. Now, just so that you can understand how English works, pre means before or preceding. So that the rapture takes place preceding the, uh, uh, the, the tribulation period. All right? More about that in a moment. Second view is what is called the mid-tribulation rapture. And that is that the rapture takes place, but it's in the middle of the tribulation period. Maybe I ought to explain. Uh, the Bible tells us about a seven-year period of time that is yet to come where God's wrath is going to be poured out on this sinful world. Those who have rejected him, his message, his word, and especially his son, his Messiah, on them will rest the judgment and the uh, wrath of God. Now, that's a seven-year period, depending on how you are with regards to your prophetic approach. If seven years means, as I think, seven years, okay, because there's a lot of people who say, well, it's imagery. It's representative of something. But if it's seven years, then it's seven years. And that's what Revelation seems to indicate. And I think that logic does as well if, if you study um, just drawing your truths out of the Bible. In my, the way I do math, half of seven is three and a half. Okay? The Bible says during the tribulation period uh, that the, uh, the one who's called the Antichrist will be revealed. And halfway through the, the tribulation period, he's made promises and covenants and details with, uh, with groups of people. In order for him to, to be to come to power and to exhort or to exert power on others, and halfway through the tribulation, three and a half year time. Now we're, I'm going to prove this to you in a moment. All right, this is where the math's going to come in. But halfway through the the antichrist is going to cut off, eliminate, uh, make impossible the sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if I can go back a couple of sermons ago, we talked about one of the important things that's an indicator that Jesus is returning soon. Remember, he said three times in Revelation 22, Behold, look, pay attention, I'm coming soon. When we said that, when we read that and thought about the soon coming of Christ, we mentioned the fact that, that plans are already underway to build, to rebuild the temple and that the temple will be functioning when Jesus returns. Now that can't happen now. We don't have a temple. But in order, now just reason with me, all right? In order for the Antichrist to stop temple sacrifice and temple <laughs> worship, doesn't it suggest that there has to be some temple worship and temple sacrifice going on? Okay, so that... The idea is that halfway through, the Antichrist is going to reveal himself and his true nature and his true character, and he's going to stop worship at the temple. And the mid-tribulation says at that time, Jesus will come and take away the saints. That means that 
the, that the elect have gone through the first three and a half years of what's called the tribulation, but now they go out and uh, it ushers in the great tribulation or the terrible day of the Lord. That's a, a, a second view. A third view is called post-tribulation. That means after the tribulation, the church will be raptured. This is primarily based on Revelation chapter 20. I think it's verse 4, 4 through 6, where, he's, where it talks about how God will gather the elect and will raise them up from the graves, and he calls it the first resurrection. But the, the post-tribulation says that that's not taking place at the beginning of the tribulation, but rather at the end, and the saints are gathered up, and then Jesus will physically return. It makes it all basically one event, okay? Um, now, those things may not seem all that different, but they really, really are, because it determines whether or not, if you are a believer, you're going to go through the tribulation, or if you're going to go through half of it, or if you're going to go through all of it. Now, I'm not telling you to choose whichever one you like based on, hmm, I think I'd rather get out of the pre-trib. Get, get out of this all. This all. Um, but that's, that's, the, that's what's at stake, and that's what's at issue. You have to do it. God's going to do it the way he's going to do it. And the Bible does not tell us when the, the rapture is going to take place. We have to... to uh, have it revealed to us through scripture, but I think the scriptures do a fairly clear job of indicating uh, which, uh, which is going to be the case of the rapture of the church. And the fourth view, and I just mentioned this in passing because I read it several times, and that is that there is no rapture of the church. The Bible doesn't mention it, so therefore, it's not going to happen. Okay? The Bible doesn't mention breaking the speed limit on I-70 either. But it does give us the principles by which to be guided. All right? Now you may say, okay, preacher, uh, which view is yours? And I will tell you, I fall into the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Not because that's what I got taught when I was in seminary, because the simple fact is that isn't what I got taught when I was in seminary. Most seminaries today Evangelical Protestant seminaries today teach and preach the post-tribulation view. I don't agree with that. I believe in the pre-tribulation view, and, and I, I wish that today was about 10 hours long. I could explain to you why. But that's the view that I'm going to be presenting to you today. And here's the best thing about being a preacher. When you're the preacher and you're preaching, you get to present your view. Okay, so we're going to do it my way today, but I want I want to make sure that I am uh, being undergirded what I've said with scriptural uh, indication. So that's uh, that's kind of the idea of what the rapture is about. When we talk about rapture, the word means to swoop up, to gather up, uh, to to fly in and take out quickly, and and. Uh, um, as I mentioned, the word rapture is not mentioned in your English version of the Bible. I don't know of any that do. You may have, have a flavor that I'm not familiar with. 
but uh, the idea of the rapture is not or is mentioned in scripture as this swooping up or this catching up or this gathering uh, up and that's mentioned for us in first thessalonians chapter 4 where jesus is going to come on the clouds and all the elect will be caught up to meet them in the air that word caught up is the word that uh, in latin translates rapturos which is rapture uh, and so the idea the scene of the rapture is presented to us in scripture and we're going to look at that. So took a, look at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, and just to get it into its context, I want to back up to verse 13 and begin reading there. <clears throat> he says, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. I want you to know, brethren, fate of those who have fallen asleep. Now this is talking about Christians, believers, who have died. <clears throat> if someone is waiting for Jesus to come and catch us up to the clouds to be with him in the air, what happens to someone when they, if they die before Jesus comes back? Is, did they miss it? That was, that was one of the struggles of the early first century church. The, the longer it was between the time Jesus ascended uh, and the time that, that, he, that you were living in, the longer that time became, there began to be doubts. Is he really coming back? If he is, what about the people that have died? And Paul is going to answer this question uh, about those who have died, or he, the term that he uses in the New Testament is falling asleep. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Uh, otherwise, you will sorrow as those who have no hope. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel. Okay? The gospel is that Jesus was crucified, was buried, and was raised from the grave. That's what the Bible, that's what Paul defines as the gospel. So he says, if we believe that Jesus died and that he rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now what does that mean? That means that when we die, and we have to put all this together, and I'm not talking about this in a physiological existential way I'm talking about this is what happens when we die we were given a body at, at conception and we were housed all however long we live in that body and then at the moment of death the body is placed in the grave or or is buried or is cremated or whatever it may be but the spirit of the person lives on because we are eternal beings we are not eternal like God is eternal, because God is eternal future, past, present. We are eternal future. That means that a million, billion, trillion years from now, you're going to be somewhere. I'm going to be somewhere. All right? We are eternal in that regard. And at the moment of death, I 
my eternal spirit leaves my uh, temporal body. This tent, Paul calls it, uh, this, this dwelling place where I've lived all this time, and I'm, I'm separated. And then we bury the body because we want to give people a good send-off and all these things, eat macaroni salad and in their honor, that kind of thing. Uh, and and we, we have a funeral service for them, but what, and what happens? What happens to them? Well, that's what's going to take place next. They, are, they have gone into the presence of God. They are absent with the body and present with the Lord. Now, what happens to this body? He goes on and he says, uh, if we believe that Jesus died, even so God will bring with him, when Jesus returns, at the rapture, he will bring with him those who have already died, those who have fallen asleep. Verse 15, he says, this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We're not going to get to heaven before my body, if I'm alive when Jesus comes back and raptures, isn't going to get up there to the clouds before the bodies of the people that have been put in the grave over the last 2,000 years. It's going, to it's going to happen. Well, he tells us here what's going to take place. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. And then he says, And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What we have just read about today, folks, is the rapture, the catching up of, of the church of the believers, whether dead physically or alive physically. We will be caught up and we will be reunited with our spirit, if we're dead, or with our loved ones, or with Jesus, and we're going to be, he says, thus we shall always be together with him in the air. And then he, he closes this, this section out by saying, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. That's the rapture of the church. That's what we're talking about. When does that take place? For me, the Bible tells me it takes place when it happens then it launches, it's the trigger, it's the firing mechanism for the tribulation period itself. Now, you may not agree with that, and that's okay. Because as I said, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when in the timeline this takes place. We have to put it together from what Jesus said. He says, you don't know the time. No one knows, it. we don't know what day and hour Jesus is coming back. We just know that he is, so be ready. And so it, it seems to me, if I'm going to be ready, I want to be ready at the beginning of the tribulation, not halfway through. Okay? I don't want to say, I don't want to be a mid-tribulation or post-tribulation rapturist and say, oops, missed that one. Okay? Uh, in fact, just so I can get this, hang, uh, this dangling sentence, thought 
over with, move on. <clears throat> when we talked about in Re Revelation the first resurrection of the dead <clears throat> and those who, who have been raised from the dead, I don't think he's talking about the rapture. I think he's talking there about the, the rapture taking place, the tribulation happening seven years, and then the return of Christ. And before the millennial kingdom comes, the people who became believers in Jesus, and there will be some, read Revelation, who have died during the tribulation period, the martyrs, for instance, who have died during the tribulation period, they will be resurrected, not the people who've rejected Jesus, they will be resurrected and join the group, join the crowd in that resurrected body. Now what happens to us when we're resurrected, when we're raptured, when we're caught up? Well, I want you to turn to another, another section that discusses that. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now the words to, the, to, the, uh, to these verses are going to be on the screen, but you may like to join with me as we read 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning at verse 50. There's really one. I could have just read one verse, but gee, why do that when you can read a whole one? Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. As you sit, you can't go to heaven. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not, follow me all the way through with this, because your body can't last forever. Okay? You are living in a cursed body. And your, your body is going to continue to age. And if you live a million, billion, trillion years in your body, you ain't going to be able to walk. You won't have any teeth left. They won't make glasses thick enough to help you. Because this body is created and cursed to deteriorate, to wear out, and to die. You have to be changed. Okay? Now that's, with that background, look at what he says. He says, the flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. We're going to be changed. You don't, Did you notice how quickly he says we're going to be changed? He says that we are going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. Do you know how long that is? Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Okay? It's approximately one inch from the front of your iris, of your eye, to the back of, of your retina. And that light that, as I'm looking out here and I'm seeing you, light is going through there. And you know how long it takes for that light to go from the front of my eye to the back of my eye? One sixty-fourth of a nanosecond. Or like that. You get it? In this time, I'm going to be changed from death to life, from corruptible to incorruptible, from mortal to immortal. You get that? Why? Because flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. God has to change us. 
Now these dead persons, the bodies of the dead who were raised uh, from the grave at the rapture, they're going to be changed also. And they're going to be given a, we use the term, glorified body, an eternal body. And so am I going to be, when I'm changed, am I going to be 25 years old and straight teeth and everything's perfect about me? I don't know. And how's that going to happen? I don't know. But I know this, in that amount of time, God's going to change us from who we are to who we are supposed to be. This is all still part of the rapture. So he says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet because the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed I was at a church one time and I went into the nursery I don't know why but I like to do that but I'm visiting around I went in the nursery and had a sign over the door we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed <clears throat> think about it you, you can chuckle later on and he, he says in verse 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption, the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, when does that happen? At the rapture of the church like that to the believers. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Right now, death is a very tragic, difficult thing to go through, isn't it? When you have a loved one, a, a mate, a spouse, a, a child, a parent, a grandparent, a friend. It's hard for us. A couple of weekends ago, we had Memorial Day weekend. I guess that was last weekend, wasn't it? And uh, Sue and I went to the, to the graves of my parents and my brother and my brother-in-law and, you know, uh, probably saw some of yours there as well. Uh, and we went there, and, and it's a real somber time. Very few people are in the cemetery playing with a frisbee or folding out a blanket to have a picnic on the ground. You know, because death is hard for us. It's tragic, isn't it? And it looks like death wins the game because every one of us are going to die. But because God is going to raise us from the grave, from the dead, and he's going to change us from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible, incorruptible. We will all be changed and death is swallowed up in victory. Now that ought to be enough for somebody to shout. That's what he has, that's what he says. And then he goes on and he says, Death, where's your sting? Hades, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. And then he, get, he uses something that he also used the closing of, of uh, his letter or his, the chapter that we read to the Thessalonians, Thessalonian, however you want to say it. And that is, therefore, because of this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Keep on working, keep on striving. 
Yeah, I know you're getting worn out. I know you're tired. God's going to take care of all that. Keep on going. It's not a waste of time. Now, having said that, um, I want to give you, I, I hope you're getting some idea about what the tribulation is. I haven't talked about what's going to happen yet. But, uh, <clears throat> but I want to talk to you about three important dates in the timeline not dates, uh, periods of time. Three times in the timeline of the end of time, of eschatology, of the end days. One of them, and we're going to talk, talk over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about each one of them. Okay? One of them is the tribulation. The tribulation is, as we've already mentioned, is that seven-year period of time. What's going to happen? In one Sunday, I'm going to try to go all the way through the tribulation. Pray for me. Pray for yourself. <clears throat> okay? The tribulation was spoken about by Daniel. And we'll talk about that in, in, in just a moment. But uh, the tribulation is that seven-year period of time uh, where God's wrath is going to be poured out. Now, by the way, I ought to say this. One of the reasons why I believe, I believe that the Christian is being preserved from the tribulation, is not going through <clears throat> the tribulation, is because the tribulation is a time where God's wrath and ire is poured out on sin. The believer has already gone through that. God's wrath was poured out for your sin on Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And his death satisfied the wrath of God. You don't hold on to it anymore. Once I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. I'm not going to be receiving that that just dessert that I that I that which I deserve because it's already been been received and taken on by Jesus. Okay? The tribulation. I don't know why I had to say that, but it came in there. And then the second time is called the millennium. <clears throat> the millennium is a is a word that means a thousand thousand years more specifically and this is the this is that time period after the tribulation and then the thousand years after the return of Jesus Christ you get this timeline life 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 rapture tribulation seven years second coming of Jesus thousand year reign of Christ the millennial kingdoms and the Bible tells us we're going to be reigning with them okay in order to do that he's going to, have to bring us we've already gone to heaven he's going to bring us with him and also those who have become believers in him uh, through the tribulation we're going to be joined together and Jesus is going to set up a kingdom on this earth and it will be a demonstration I, I, I hesitate to use that word but it will it will validate and it will show what life could have been like had we never sinned. Had there never, had this world never been put under a curse. Had Adam and Eve said, no, we're not going to eat of that tree because God said no. <coughs> the millennial kingdom is the kingdom where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. There still is going to be some meanness. There still is going to be sin because people are here. Uh, but that's the millennial kingdom. In two weeks, we'll talk about that. 
Next week, we're going to talk about the tribulation. Two weeks, we're going to talk about the millennium. And the third one is the period, the time period um, where there is a new creation that's going to take, where God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll talk about that in three weeks. All right? So let's go back here and let's talk about uh, the tribulation. Uh, the, this tribulation period uh, is a time, as we've mentioned, of seven years of length, at, and it was discussed in detail, difficult detail, but in detail, by uh, both John and the Revelation and the Old Testament prophet Daniel. If you know very much about Daniel, he's writing about 600 years before Jesus comes along on the scene. Uh, he's not somebody who's seen all this, read all these books, gone to seminary and learned all this stuff, and then he's writing his, his memoirs. This is Daniel presenting a, a, an apocalyptic word. Do you remember that word I've talked about the first week? An apocalyptic word is a word that means it's an, a, an unveiling of a mystery. It's pulling the curtain back so you can see things. Usually in the apocalyptic way of writing, it's different from a prophetic way of writing. Because a prophetic way of writing is this. Thus saith the Lord, you do this, I'll do this. You don't do this, I'll do this. It's conditional um, uh, instruction. Apocalyptic is, no, is not open for debate. God says, this is the way it's going to happen. You can't change it. You can't. You can't repent and cause it to go away. And that's what Daniel is going to be doing. He's going to show the mystery, unveil the mystery, so that the people can understand, as much as God's going to let them understand, how things are going to come down. And there, it's, it's not like what we need to do is have a Bible study and invite God to see if we can talk him out some of this stuff. It's going to happen the way he says. You understand that? That's... That's because God's in charge. He's large and in charge. Okay? And there, we are not. So our own theology or whatever doesn't really much matter. If, if, you, if you dig my drift. In the book of Daniel, Daniel writing 600 years before Jesus writes about this period of time. Now, I want you to open, well, you can read it here on the screen. This is where the math's going to come in. So get ready. Take your Excedrin now. Uh, it really ain't going to be all that bad. But, uh, but I want you to, to look with me as to what he says in Daniel chapter 9. And I want to begin at verse 24. Daniel writing... From Babylon, where he's held captive, says this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Now, I, I, let me just say, in the version, I'm reading from a New King James Version. And that word where it says 70 weeks, literally to be correctly translated, is 77s. Okay? Because we start saying, well, what, 70 weeks, that's, what, 490 days. That's a little over a year and a half. 
year and a third. And, uh, and he's using imagery here to make this point by, the, by saying a week is seven days. So 70 weeks or seven, seven, uh, 70 sevens could mean weeks, days, years. And as we study along through the rest of what Daniel has to say, we find that the 70 weeks means 70 years. Now remember what it says, this is what's determined for your people. God has always kept time by Israel. Hello, do you understand what I'm saying? If, and I think I said this in an earlier sermon. If you want to know what God is up to, look at Israel. See what he's doing. In 1948, he took a people who were not a people and he made them a people again. He took land and he gave it back, the promised land he gave back to them. And then we've talked about some of the other dates where God has been actively intervening in their history. So he talks about there being 70 weeks, 70 years, 70 uh, periods of seven years that are going to be for the history of your people. When the time starts ticking, you watch Israel for, for 70, uh, for 490 years. Are you following me there? Okay, because if you're not, we need to spend some more time here. Because if you don't get that part, you're not going to get the rest of it. In other words, watch, keep your eyes on Israel, because Israel is going to be God's timepiece for 490 years. Here's the problem. We are now about 2,500 years removed from that prophecy. Well, that, that's what is going to be explained. Let me read it to you. He says, uh, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression." To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring into everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And the most holy is a reference to the Messiah. You got 490 years in this, and that you're going to be doing all these things. You're drawing an end to the world. That's what he's talking about. To make an end of the transgressions, you're drawing. To bring about full and complete judgment on this earth. Israel is going to be, it's going to be taking place. It's going to be timed by you. Okay, now do you, do you follow what I'm saying? And, he, and then he says, uh, <clears throat> he says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth to command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which took place by, uh, during the day of Nehemiah, Prior to Nehemiah, they had gone back and rebuilt the temple, sort of. Got it started, got the foundation, sort of. They, but they didn't do anything with the city. They didn't do anything with the walls. It was just, it was a target out in the middle of nowhere. And Nehemiah was granted by edict of the Persian king to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Now this says, no, that going forth from the command to rebuild Jerusalem is going to be um, it, 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 going forth to rebuild Jerusalem. That's going to be the timepiece that we're looking for. So the clock starts when the command is given to go back and rebuild the temple. 
That took place by Artaxerxes when he issued his decree in 457 B.C. Okay? Then he goes on, and he says, Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Somebody quick, do the math. What's seven plus 62? 69, is that roughly? If you get a different answer, you're wrong. It's 69 weeks, all right? Seven weeks of years, 62 weeks of years. If you take, starting from 457 B.C., you go until, um, uh, uh, you go 49 years, takes you to 408 B.C., and then another 62 years is going to be, and that's, by the way, the time that they finished the project. Then 62 years times 7, or 62 weeks times 7, is 434 years. And if you add 434 years to 408 B.C., you come up roughly with the year 26 A.D. You know what happened in 26 A.D.? Probably about that time. Jesus was baptized and identified himself as, in his ministry as the Messiah. That's going to be when the Messiah is revealed. Your deliverer is coming to bring your deliverance. Uh, and that will happen at 62 weeks. Does that tell you that there's a week short? I mean, does 69 equal 70? I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you buy $70 worth of groceries, will they take 69 or will they make you put back your Hershey bar? It's not the same, is it? God promised 70 weeks. There's still a week to go. A week of sevens. Seven years. Guess what that's referring to? The seven-year tribulation period. That's when things are going to start up again in the temple. When things are going to start up again with regards to God's people. And there is going to be a hatred turned up on, on uh, the Jewish people. Like we, as bad as it is in what we're seeing in, in the news today, as bad as it is, we haven't seen anything like this. What's going to happen to them? And that's going to be this terrible, uh, this great tribulation period. So, verse 25 goes on and says, The street will be built again, the wall even in troublesome times, and historically we know that's true. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. But not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's probably a reference to Titus, the, the Roman general, who was, who was ready to go in and level the city of Jerusalem. And once Jerusalem is leveled, once Israel is scattered, it's kind of hard to keep time by them, isn't it? They're not around. There's no way to see what, what's going on in their life. But God was still working and he brought them back into the land in the year 1948, when they became a nation. In 1967, when they took the holy city of Jerusalem. And in 2018, when Jerusalem was declared to be the capital city of, of, uh, of Israel. So he, he says uh, uh, he will destroy the city and... Verse 26 goes on and says, Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. There's going to be uh, 
great things that are going on during the, during the tribulation period. And uh, one of the things that he's going to talk about, and you probably have heard it and don't know, have a clue what it means, the abomination of desolation. Something's going to happen at the temple that is going to cause, it's going to put such a curse on the temple that God's going to have to leave. He makes it desolate. That's what's going to take place during the tribulation when the Antichrist reveals himself, cut off, cuts off sacrifice to God, and has the people start to sacrifice to him. It makes the temple, the, the, that timepiece of God, desolate because God because of the abomination that takes place there. Going on. Now, this is not part of the sermon, so don't so stop your watches if you would. Okay? Um, then he will confirm, the Antichrist will, a covenant with many for a week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. There's a whole lot there. Okay? I wish we could stay here for about a month and just pick this apart. But here's what you need to see. Daniel, 600 years before, before Jesus, prophesied of something that would take place at least 2,500 years into, the, into his future, still into our future. And he, pre he presents it with historical and mathematic accuracy. Only God can do that. God's revealing and, and, and unveiling the mystery about uh, eschatology. Now, I also mentioned that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to call these out. I'm not going to talk about them because we'll talk about them in the future. Then there's the millennial kingdom. Uh, and then is the new creation. Now, again, we're out of, out of, just about out of time. But I want to tell you what happens during the rapture. When the rapture occurs, what's going to happen? First of all, Jesus himself will descend. He ascended. He, he came to earth, remember, as a baby. Was born, became just like us, lived, lived a life like us, yet he didn't sin. And after he was crucified, buried, and was raised from the dead, 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven to be with his father. Okay? You know all that, right? That's Easter kinds of, kinds of things. When, Jesus, when the rapture takes place, Jesus, God, is not going to send a messenger. He's not going to send second in command, send the vice president down to do, the, to do the, this task. He's going to send Jesus himself. Jesus is going to return. He himself, is going, that's going to be the first thing. Jesus is going to, is going to uh, return. Secondly, the archangel is going to shout and blow the trumpet. I, I just I, I, I tried to figure out exactly how to do that uh, to play for you the sound of the trumpet. I talked about this last week. The trumpet. Don't think of the brass instrument where the angels play when the saints come marching in. This is a shafar. We sh I showed you. It's a it's a bone. It's a ram's horn. And 
the people at the temple would blow that horn, or even the armies would blow that horn, and it would be a sentry. It'd be a message to the people around. It was loud. It was piercing. It didn't have musical notation to it at all. It was just loud, blaring noise. Okay, I shouldn't say noise because there's a way to do it a certain way. People are trained in this. The archangel, the archangel probably is Michael, because Michael seems to be pretty prominent in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, but this, this high-ranking uh, angel is going to blast the way and shout the way to prepare for people to see Jesus <clears throat> in the clouds. <clears throat> the next thing, I wish I had time to talk to you about the Feast of Trumpets. Because I think that fits here. Uh, Feast of Trumpets is the also called Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It's the only of the holidays of the Jewish of the seven Jewish holidays that are prescribed in Scripture. That's on the first day of the month of their first day of the month. That means it's the night of the new moon. Okay, their calendar is based not like on our Julian calendar, you know, where you've got. 30 days, half September, April, June, and November, all the rest have 31 except for February, which has 29 alone, 20, or 28, 29 on leap year. Uh, theirs is, is a calendar based on the moon, and it takes 29 and a half days for the, earth, for the moon cycle to complete, to go from new moon to new moon. You got a problem with you got a half day. So the next month, it, so they got one month that's 29 days and one month that's 30 days. But if you do the math on that, you find there's 354 days a year. And that doesn't, that's going to, within three years, going to have you messed up. You're going to be having May weather in, in, in April. Okay? You get, you get, if you catch my drift, it's a problem. So they just add a month. And they do this, their, their, their calendar is based on a seven either a 17 or a 19 year cycle where you've got 29, 30, 29, 30, an extra day here, an extra month there. And anyhow, on the first day of the month, the Jewish month is always a new moon. On the day of Rosh Hashanah, the new moon doesn't, uh, you can't declare to be a new year until the new moon is complete. You know how sometimes you can see the moon, but you just see a little sliver? It's not the new moon yet. The watchman has to be watching and see zero part of the moon lit up. That's when it's the new year. And they would report to the high priest that the new moon has come, so now it's the day of the new year, and they would start to blow the trumpet. The Jews call that the day no one knows. You can have it on the calendar, but it's not the new, uh, the new year until the new moon is completed. You hear me? On the Feast of Trumpets, nobody knows what day it's going to take place. But when it's time, the trumpet will blow. And it will be the warning, it will be the sign. It's here. He's here. It's the new year. It's the new life. All this stuff is taking place. The archangel will shout and blow the trumpet. Uh, and by the way, that gives some 
new definition to me of that day, day and hour, hour no one knows. knows. Only my Father in heaven knows. Um, then, rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first. We've already talked about that at, at some length. Those who are in the ground will come up from the ground. How God's going to do that, I haven't a clue. But that's what, that's what Paul wrote. And he said he gives you this by the word of the Lord. Then the alive in Christ will rise. And then we will meet with him and them in the clouds. And we also all will be changed. That's the rapture. Do you see what's ahead for you? Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, God's not just saying, all right, this world's a wind-up toy. Good luck. I'm going to wind it up and set it off. God is actively working through every detail to bring about his plan and purpose. We can't stop it in any way. God has said, this is the way it's going to happen. Isn't that great? So what do we do? I just want to read to you the last verse of the two verses, the two passages we've read again. Because I think since that's true, here's what we need to do. First, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Be encouraged by this today. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 15.58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor's not in vain when you're doing it for him. And then I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 20. Blessed, is, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's the rapture. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him, reign with him a thousand years. God's got a great plan working, doesn't he? I hope you're ready for it. I hope that you're all in. I hope your ticket's punched because it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I want you to bow your head with me, will you? Father, thank you so much for who you are. I thank you, God, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that things that are difficult for us to put our feeble minds around are not too difficult for you, that you are working your plans and your purposes out, plans and purposes that were established before you ever created anything in this world, and they still remain true today. So thank you for that. Thank you, Father. Also, if I can just be personal with you for a second, thank you for saving me, for calling my name and staying with me until I gave you my life. Because, Father, you gave me so much more than just a place at the table. You have called me and given me the opportunity to rule and to reign with your Son. 
So, Father, I thank you for that. And I thank you for the salvation of each one that's here, that's hearing my voice. Those who have responded to your offer, your gift of salvation. I want to pray today for those who maybe haven't done that or who don't know if they've done that. That today, Father, would be the day that they recognize Jesus as their personal Savior and their Lord. So they can look forward to, with excitement and anticipation, the snatching away of your elect, rather than fearing that day. So now, Father, in these next few moments, as our, our focus is now once again on you, and what you'd have us to do with what we'd hear, as we sing, Father, these next words, I pray, Lord, that your spirit might just come alive in us. Make it real to us. Have your way, Father, in each and every heart. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.